chapter 19, finishing out sort of the epilogue of Sodom and Gomorrah, beginning in verse 30, or going all the way through chapter 20, which is not a very long chapter, but deals with another chapter in Abraham's life. So let's begin uh, by reading Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38, and then we will uh, jump into what the Lord has for us this morning. The word of God reads as follows, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know uh, when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both of the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, for he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Lord, thank you for your word, and we trust that you will speak to us and minister to us this morning out of this passage of scripture and out of these crazy things that are happening. Lord, reveal to us the things that uh, apply to our lives here and now out of the truth of what happened back then. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you may recall from last week, we were considering the, the horrible, tragic story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as Lot and his family were fleeing from the destruction that was about to rain upon the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the angel had ushered them out. They lost a significant part of their family. There were 10 of them there. Only three of them made it out alive because of their uh, being spiritually asleep or being unwilling to heed the words of the angels as they came and said, get out. And then, of course, Lot, as he went and warned the extended part of his family, they thought he was joking. Lot had sort of lost his witness uh, because of the way he had conducted his life and the decisions that he had made. Uh, and you may remember as they were heading out, the angels had said to him, um, head out up into the mountains and we can't do anything until you get there. But, but Lot had this sort of pitiful plea, well, I don't really want to go to the mountains. Uh, how about this little city right over here? How about you just send us to that city, Zoar, uh, meaning small or little. And so the angels agreed to that and said, look, just get into the city so that we can do what God has told us to do, which is to reign uh, brimstone and fire down from heaven, from the Lord. And the scripture said specifically, the Lord sent that fire down upon the city. And so as they went there, now we sort of come to the next chapter in this, and we find that Lot and his daughters, 
uh, went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains. There's no reason given to us why he did that. This is where he asked that the angels would send him or permit him to go. But there are commentators who have speculated that perhaps because Zoar was a, a sort of a mini Sodom, meaning all the cities in that region who had gotten destroyed during that time had characteristics of Sodom and Gomorrah in them. It was a part of their lifestyle and their culture that perhaps because uh, Lot and his daughters were there and uh, there was no doubt um, they, they understood what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah that perhaps Lot and his daughters didn't feel comfortable being there because it was because of them uh, leaving the cities that the destruction came upon the cities uh, because God was, of course, judging the sin. Um, and so perhaps they were out of place there. And so they now flee up to the mountains as the angels had originally told them to do. Now, before we move on, there's something that I want to sort of punctuate from last week. You remember as they were exiting the city, that Lot's wife, of course, was with them, but then she lingered behind, and the scriptures indicate that she probably turned and looked, not just turned her head, but turned her body and looked longingly back at the city. And then, of course, Jesus had shared with us um, in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew and Luke, um, about um, the story of Lot's wife. And the interesting thing is that the, the verb tenses around what Jesus said when he said, remember Lot's wife, are in the continual active, meaning always be continually remembering Lot's wife. And the thing is, as we went through that and talked about what that meant, it meant being spiritually asleep. It meant longing for the things of the earth. It meant longing for the things of the world and finding our identity and our hope in the things of the world. Um, Lot's wife, uh, I'm sure, felt the pain and the sorrow of having lost children uh, in the destruction that came because of their uh, being spiritually asleep and being unwilling to heed the word of the Lord, but also because she looked back with longing because she and Lot and their family had built a life, a comfortable life in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, as we fast forward to it's just Lot and his two daughters, they go up and it says they dwelt in a cave. Now, the firstborn said to the younger, as we just read, our father is old and there is no man on the earth to come in to us as is the custom of all the earth. Now, of course, there were people still on the face of the earth. We're wondering here if what she meant was that there were no other men who could be trusted, uh, who weren't perverted, or something like that. At any rate, the children now reasoning, um, you know, how can we solve this problem? How can we have offspring so that our family and our family name will continue? Now, the fact that their daughters would consider such a thing is appalling to us as it should be. And although the law had not yet been given against incest, uh, we know from the study of the, the cultures of that day that not even the Canaanites, who were among the most wicked of the earth, had this practice among them. It was not okay. And so what would cause these daughters to do this thing? Well, some of the commentators have speculated and again, it's speculation, but because of what just happened in Sodom, I mean, the, that was a, a dark place to live. The sexual practices were wide and diverse and perverse. 
And remember that as Lot was trying to protect the two guests that he didn't yet understand or realize were angels, that he had offered up these two daughters in a perverse way to be used sexually by those men who had come to the door and demanded to have homosexual relations with the angels. So we don't know what it is, but certainly this is all a part of how Lot had conducted his life and what was in the mind of his daughters. So that they could reason and say, look, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to scheme. We're going to get our father drunk. We're going to take care of him. And we're going to have a relationship with him so that first the older and then the younger could hopefully get pregnant by their father and then carry on the line of his offspring. I'd like to read a little section to you here so that you can sort of gain a sense of what's happening. This is dark. The deeds took place at night in a cave. There could scarce be a darker context on earth. It is evident that Lot's life choices had promoted his daughter's absorbing of the spirit of Sodom into their souls. Life in Sodom had repeatedly demonstrated before his daughter's eyes how wine and sensuality worked together, weakening a person's inhibitions so that he was incapable of anything. Deception, of course, was a way of life in Sodom, and Lot was a part of it, but his deception was so spiritually charged and therefore so domestically lethal. Inwardly, he was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked and was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds, according to 2 Peter three times. Peter cited that Lot was a righteous man. But outwardly, he said little or nothing as he became a prominent man in the town. Forthrightness would have jeopardized his standing. Lot had mastered the craft of turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the social and sexual abuses of Sodom. He did not do them or participate in them. He did not even approve of them. But he did not speak out against them. Blasphemies and filthy speech were met by Lot's benign smile and deft deflection. His daughters saw his feckless character that so shrewdly masked what he had really thought. Lot the survivor was a master. His girls could not forget that he had offered them in order to appease the inflamed men of Sodom in a monstrous, monstrous betrayal of his fatherly duty. Perhaps that gives us a little context for understanding what could have been in their minds as they were reasoning toward the act that they were about to commit. In verse 34, it says, uh, it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also when you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Now, you have to be pretty drunk for something like this to happen. And for him to, uh, according to what we're reading here, indicating that he had no idea who had, he had lain with during the night is a pretty far-fetched thing to think that he was so intoxicated that he had no idea that he had had relations or with whom. So this is a pretty crazy situation, but this is what the daughters did. And then now you get the understanding of the passing of time here in these 
um, later verses in verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon or the Ammonites to this day. The name Moab is based on the Hebrew from my father, and the Ben-Ami name means literally son of my paternal kinsman. So their names mean that they had children by their father. Now Deuteronomy tells us that it was the Moabites and the Ammonites later in their inhospitality to the wandering Israelites that brought the animosity of the relationship between the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Jewish people. The king of Moab's enlistment of Balaam to curse Israel did ultimately eventuate in the carnal seduction of Israel. You may remember that the king of Moab in the book of Numbers, chapters 25 and 31, had planned a seduction against the people of Israel to draw them aside because they wanted to find a way to weaken their strength and weaken their relationship with God. It was a full-blown satanic attack. And the, the Moabites were used of that, the king of Moab, to find a way to cause the people to intermarry. And it was through sexual seduction that that effectual dismemberment of the Israeli people happened. But so that it, we understand it's not all bad news, it should be remembered that King David and ultimately the Messiah was descended from Ruth, who was a Moabite woman. And if you go read Ruth chapter 4, you'll see... The beauty of the story of Ruth is God used her. And of course, when we come to the New Testament and we read the lineages, we understand that God still uses things, even though they may be bad, even though they may have turned out not quite so well, that God still uses these things, as we just sang about, for our good and for his glory. Only God can take things like that and turn them around and use them in such a way that it makes sense. And so I say that this morning to say this to you and I. We need to be reminded that if we're in a place today that we have experienced or we are experiencing something that is hurtful, that is evil, that God can take those things and turn them around and use them, again, for our good and for his glory. Now, as we come to the end of this section, I want to let you know that this is the last time that Lot is mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's sad as we consider Lot's um, history of, of what he left behind. You know, thank God that he was a righteous man. Thank God that he loved God. But as we shared last week, as we talked about some of the scriptures that applied to Lot being delivered out of the book of 1 Corinthians, we read a scripture that said he was delivered as though through fire, that he was delivered in such a way that he barely got out, as my grandmother used to say, by the skin of his teeth. He just barely got out. And he, he, he lost so much of his family in the tragedy of what was left behind. Again, something I want to read to you here, I apologize for the length of this, but I, I can't say it any better than this. Lot's immortal folly was this. Though the worldliness of Sodom vexed his righteous soul, he lived as close to the world as he could, hanging on to it for dear life until the bitter end. 
And the result was that though God judged all of Sodom, except Lot and his daughters, Sodom was reborn in their very lives. So we see that it is possible for believing people like us, who are truly distressed by the course of this world, to live lives that are so profoundly influenced by culture that Sodom is reborn in the lives of those that we love the most. The enticements to yield to this syndrome have never been more powerful than they are right now because of our prosperity, our options on the internet, and the powers of the media. I sense that these are crucial days politically, culturally, and spiritually. This was written in 2004, by the way. And we are the only ones who can do anything about it, and we must. God help us if while decrying sin, we are sprinting headlong after, it, after sin because we will not deny ourselves. Materialism. Whether we are wealthy or not, we must say no to materialism. We know it is bad, but we are not saying no when we deny nothing to ourselves. We are not saying no when we give our children whatever they want if they pester us long enough. And we are not saying no if our giving does not affect our lifestyles. We simply must not be worldly materialists who are only offended by those whose lifestyles are more lavish than ours. We must say no, and we must not participate in Lot's folly. Pleasure-seeking. Nothing is more despotic than pleasure-seeking, and few things control our families more than pleasure. Certainly we must know how to abound, and as Christians, in a sense, our pleasures are more acute, but to determine our actions by a desire for the greatest pleasure is to surrender to hell and to bring the ways of hell on our offspring. Lot could never say no, even in that dark cave. We, however, must learn to say no. Entertainment. Despite the pundits, the murals, we become what we focus on in the same way that we are what we eat. I would like to call uh, out to men, because we are the biggest offenders, to take control of what comes into our houses. We must become biblically discriminating. Some need to put the TV in the closet for a season. TV violence is de jour in most homes. Sensuality is de jour on every network following the evening news. Today is the day to say no and take control of our own minds and souls for the sake of our sons and daughters. Finally, immodesty. Modesty must be essential in every Christian life, not because we think we are good, but because we know how bad we are. We must celebrate the differences between men and women, not with lewdness, but with the respect that honors the God who made us. I share that with you as sort of a punctuation, a closing to this issue of Sodom and Gomorrah and to Lot's demise that while he was a believer and he escaped by the skin of his teeth, he was a believer who had so compromised with the world that all that was left of him was his righteous soul was vexed by the evil out there, but when people looked at his life, they could not distinguish a believing moral quality that set him apart from the unbelieving world. With that in the rearview mirror, let's continue on into chapter 20 
And consider this relationship between Abraham and Abimelech. And it says, Adam, uh, Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and journeyed to Gerar. And now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Here we go with that again. He did this, you may recall, back in chapter 12 when he went down south and he went to spend time in Egypt because of the famine and the things that drove him that direction. He ended up in the household of Pharaoh, and you remember all the way back then that while he was in Egypt, he never worshiped the Lord. And when he got to Egypt, he told Sarah, as he had from the beginning, okay, if we ever get into a situation where because of your immense beauty that they decide, you know, that they would want to kill me, you just tell them you're my sister, uh, which is true because you're my half-sister, and that way we can avoid this, this problem of me getting hurt in the meantime. Now, what's interesting as we think about that, how both in Lot's situation and in the situation of Abraham, they both at moments had crisis of faith, meaning they in one, at one time maybe believed in God and trusted in him to deliver them and to provide for them, but then they get into a different situation where the circumstances have changed where the ante has been upped, and now all of a sudden it is difficult for them to believe that God has their best at heart and in mind. So Abraham now and Sarah, now many, many years later, uh, probably about 20 years later, he's saying, tell her, you know, say she is my sister, and she even herself said he is my brother. Um, So, excuse me, I skipped a verse here. Uh, Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah into his household. In verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, as we understand it, Abimelech was a pagan king, but God came to this pagan king in the form of a dream And I would call this an intervention by God because of what Abraham and Sarah had cooked up. And he says to this man in his dream in a very real, surreal way so that when he wakes up in the morning, he knows that God has spoken to him. And God spoke to him and said, you are a dead man because of the woman you've taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, thankfully for him. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Didn't he say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Certainly Abimelech is speaking truth before God, isn't he? These things are true. These things happen to him. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld uh, you from sinning against me. Boy, if that doesn't communicate to us the sovereignty of God, I don't know what does, because God had protected this pagan king from sinning in such a way that it would have caused him death and probably judgment and even death upon his household and his kingdom. So God intervenes in the sin and the folly of Abraham and Sarah. 
and protects this king from sinning. And he protects Abraham and Sarah in the meantime, because as you may recall, uh, right now we are in a phase that uh, the angel of the Lord had appeared to Abraham and had said, this time next year, you will have a child. So now we're in that period of time somewhere. We aren't told exactly where we are, where uh, Sarah would be getting pregnant. So certainly I see this again as sort of an attack of Satan on the bloodline of Christ, that there is a potential here that this king, Abimelech, could have actually taken Sarah and caused her to get pregnant. But God was protecting the lineage of the Messiah. And so he intervened here. And he says, now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet First time the word prophet is used in the Bible. Abraham is called by God a prophet. And he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech had a choice. He had an option, didn't he? He could have chosen to do what he wanted to do or he could obey God. And so to me, this is a strong example for us that as a, a pagan king, God spoke to him and he obeyed the voice of the Lord and acknowledged that God had kept him, had protected him from sinning. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, verse 8, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. The basic cause of Abraham and Sarah's failure is this, that they had failed to judge this sin when they had dealt with it 20-some years earlier. They had admitted their sin to Pharaoh and confessed it to God, but they, the fact that it surfaced again indicates that they did not judge it and deal with it and forsake it way back then when it first occurred. A light-hearted admission of sin is not the same as a broken-hearted confession of sin. If our attitude is right, we will hate our sins and loathe ourselves for having sinned and despise the very memory of our sins. People who remember their sins with pleasure and enjoy them again in their minds have never judged their sins or seen how sinful their sins really are. When believers sin... They are disciplined by God until they come to a place of repentance and confession. This discipline is not enjoyable, but it is profitable. And in the end, it produces happiness and holiness to the glory of God. So here we are with Abraham and Sarah resurfacing a sin that they had dealt with and sort of a little ruse or a ploy they had ran 20-some uh, years earlier. And so now Abimelech, verse 9, called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. I want you to consider the gravity of a pagan king telling a believer who's under the blessing and the protection of God, you have done things that ought not to have been done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? Now, I don't know if you've ever been asked the question, why did you do what you did? And you kind of go, uh, 
Um, uh, I don't know. Or you've ever asked a little kid, you know, after they've done something, hey, why did you do that? And they go, uh, I don't know. You know, we do know why we do the things we do, don't we? Spurgeon said, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. When we deliberately disobey God, we suffer both from the consequences of our sins and from the chastening hand of God unless we repent and submit. God in his grace will forgive our sins according to 1 John 1, but God in his sovereignty must allow sin to produce a sad harvest. If you read Psalm 32 and 51, which are the epilogues to David's sin with Bathsheba, and you see what happened to David physically and spiritually because he would not repent and confess his sins to the Lord, it would change our perspective. Verse 11, and Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. So that was his reasoning. He had judged the situation. He had allowed his human reasoning to overcome the sovereignty of God and how God had already protected him and provided for him in his life. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me, think, listen here to verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. So here's the root of the sin right here. Abraham said, because God caused me to wander from my father's house. So there was something in Abraham's heart going back to the day that God spoke him and said, get out of here, go away from your father's house to a place I will show you. There was apparently an element of doubt somewhere or an element of resentment in his heart because the word that's used here for the word wander is everywhere it's used throughout the scriptures is a, it, it's a bad word. It's an incriminating word. It's a, it's a word of blame. So Abraham is blaming God saying the reason we had to come up with this scheme is because you made me wander from my father's house. I tell you, when we blame God for something, you, you got to know we're out there a little bit, right? We're a little bit off base. We are not founded and grounded in reality when we're pointing the finger at God and saying, God caused me, God made me do this. That's worse than saying the devil made me do it, which is a little bit closer to the truth, but ultimately we are responsible before God for our own sin. A lie consists in the motive quite as much as in the actual words, wrote F.B. Meyer. A half-truth has just enough fact in it to make it plausible and just enough deception to make it dangerous. One person wrote, when a child of God gets out of the will of God, the discipline of God usually follows. I know that to be true. I've experienced that. You probably have as well. In verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, 
and male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. And thus she was rebuked. So now Sarah is called out and rebuked for her part in the scheme as well. And so this pagan king who had a word from the Lord is now doing his best to make everything right as far as it depends on him. He's given them an inordinate amount of money. He's given them land. He's given them possessions and blessings. And now Abraham, verse 17, the prophet, prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and then they bore children. So we get the idea here that as long as Sarah was in his household, and you see what this story doesn't give us, again, is the passing of time. From the time he took her in to the time that this happened, God had basically put uh, the kibosh on anyone in uh, Abimelech's household or kingdom from having children. And so because this situation has now been acknowledged and brought out into the light and corrected and made right in God's eyes and in the eyes of the people, this, this whole thing was brought out into the open. Remember Abimelech, when he woke up, went to his court, went to his people, and he told them what God had said to him. So again, something not to be missed is a pagan king goes before his people and he says, God spoke to me in a dream and here's what God said. So apparently there was enough of a knowledge and recognition of God, even in their pagan culture, that they realized who he was. Because all of the people in awe and fear said, well, what are we supposed to do? And of course, then Abimelech, when he did all these things to make it right, so Abraham prayed to God, this is the punctuation on the story, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and they bore children. God had withheld that blessing from them, God demonstrating his sovereign power. Not only did he keep the king from sinning and preserve the, the bloodline of the Messiah, but he also kept all of their, their women from having children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the houses of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, thank God for interventions. Amen. God protects us from our stupidity. God protects us from our foolishness. God protects us from our sin. God protects us from the consequences of our sin. I mean, our consequences, the consequences of our sin may, may come and they may be with us for a long time, but God may lessen the severity of those consequences. God has abilities that we can never understand. And God wants us to understand there's the issue of sowing and reaping. And that just like in the, the life of Lot, just like in the life of Abraham, God looks at them and says, you've done foolishly, you have sinned, but God also looks at them and says, you're righteous, you're my child, you belong to me. 
And that's where I find the great comfort this morning as we consider the intervention of God in the lives and the situation of both Lot and of Abraham. God so graciously intervenes and protects us from the folly of our sin. As God intervened in the life of this king and kept this king from doing something against one of his own children, so God does similar things to us. Many years ago, a Christian songwriter and artist, Amy Grant, wrote a song, and I believe the title of the song was Angels Watching Out For Me. And in her song, she sings about things that actually happened in her life, like how God had prevented her from having a car accident. Or in one situation where there was going to be a collision, but there were, the cars never actually touched, but there was a, a dent the shape of a person in her bumper. And the only explanation was that an angel had stood there and prevented a tragic accident from, from happening. And when we think about, again, Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him and to those who are the called according to his purpose. That is one big divine intervention by God in our lives. As we're going to find out later with Joseph, when all of those horrible, terrible, tragic things happen in his life, the fateful day will come in Joseph's life some 20 years later when his brothers are brought before him in the court of Pharaoh and they don't know who he is, they don't recognize him. And then the veil is removed from their eyes and they understand it. And in that moment, one of the most famous lines in all of history is spoken where Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, God intervenes, and I'm so grateful for the intervention of God. And you know what the best and the biggest intervention of God is? It's called the cross of Jesus Christ, where he came down into human history, and he took on the form of a man. And even though most of the world didn't understand and still doesn't understand, even today, 2,000 years later, there was a need for a Savior and God looked at the helpless estate of all of us who are in the, the family of humanity and said, no one will ever have the opportunity to have a relationship with me and to come into my kingdom unless I intervene and send my son to be the propitiation for their sin, meaning the satisfaction of God's wrath so that they can have a relationship with me and understand the way it was truly meant to be from the beginning of time, which is that man walks in the cool of the day with his creator, with his maker, and has a relationship with him. And that's why Jesus had to come, the greatest intervention of all time. You see, these kind of interventions we read about here in the scriptures, th these, are, these are temporary. These, these are short-sighted things. I mean, they're, they're big, but nothing is as big as the cross. Nothing is as big as Jesus. Nothing is as big as the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. And that's why it's so necessary that we turn to God and that we acknowledge him, that we acknowledge his hand in our lives daily, but we acknowledge that God has done these things and that he loves us and that he wants us to follow him. He wants us to come into relationship with him. So today, I hope you understand that God has intervened, not just in the life of Lot, 
not just in the life of Abraham on multiple occasions, not just on the behalf of the lives of, of great people and these stories in the scriptures that we're going to read over and over and over, but God has intervened uniquely and divinely and sovereignly in my life and in your life. He's done it through the cross and he continues to do it through his word, through the preaching and teaching of his word, through the time we have in devotions, through times of worship. And he protects us and he guards us and he cares for us and he loves us. And I'm so grateful for that and I hope you are too. And as we come to this time at the table this morning, I pray that you will just enjoy the sweet fellowship of God because of the interventions of God in our lives. Amen. Lord, thank you this morning for your grace, for your love, and for your mercy. And as we worship you now, and we consider how deep your love is for us, may you overwhelm us with your love. May you overwhelm us with your care with your divine plans, God, you, you know and do and, and say things and act in ways that we can never understand. But we're so grateful. And for those of us who know you this morning, Lord, we just come and we say thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Lord, for those who are listening who may not know you or perhaps they've just wandered from you, may today remind them that there is hope. There is hope because of your love and because of your forgiveness, because you care. Because you intervene indicates that you care. Thank you that you care. And this morning, Lord, I just think of the words of the old hymn, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling, calling for you and for me. So this morning, may we hear the call and answer and draw near to you during this time of worship. And as we come and as we take the table together, may you bless us and minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we worship, uh, go ahead and gather your communion both at home and here in the room, and then we will uh, partake together.